Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. Good to see you. It's starting to feel like summer out there, isn't it? Who, who's like thrilled about that and who wants to fast forward a little bit? Thrilled? Yeah? Nobody's thrilled? We got like three people? One person. Two. Three. Okay. And everybody else, you're just like, get us the fall? Okay. All right. So at least we know what we're dealing with here. All right. Well, hey, welcome to Life Community. We are glad that you are here, and I uh, just hope you're having a great weekend. Um, as we dive into our uh, to what we're talking about here in the book of Ephesians today, let me just ask you a question. What do you want for your kids? Now, maybe you don't have kids. Maybe uh, your kids are all grown and long grown. Maybe you have grandkids. Maybe you're a teenager, and you're like, kids, I am a kid. So, okay, so think forward a ways, like, you know, years, long ways down the road, if, if you have kids, when you have kids, what would you want for your kids? If you have kids, what do you want for your kids? Some of you, you have little kids, and you're like, all I really want is for them to sleep through the night. Been there, been there. Hang on. It's coming. J- just telling you, it's, it's coming, right? Now, actually, I think when we, when we start talking about and thinking about it, what, what do we really want for our kids? I think there's some obvious things on the surface level, right? Like, we want, we want them to be happy. I, I do. I want them to be happy. Um, I, I want them to experience some level of success in life in whatever direction God sends them out on, right? Um, I, I don't want them to have to experience, like, real pain in life. Anybody else? Fortunately, that's not always a reality, but... That's what I want, right? I, um, I want them to meet and marry someone who's going to treat them right. That's, those are kind of surface-level things we could probably stack hands on and go, yeah, we, we agree on that. But then there's a deeper level kind of when I think about what I want for my kids. And ultimately, um, when they grow up and, and leave our home and hopefully, you know, come back to visit someday, I want to have a really close relationship with my kids. I want there to be love and support. I want to have a relationship. I, I want them to know that they are deeply loved. I really want that for my kids. And, and one of the, I, when, you, when you talk about deep, what I really want for my kids at a deep level, um, I want them to have a relationship with God, a real genuine relationship with God. I, I want them to love Jesus. And as a pastor, I want them not to hate the church. <laughs> I want them to love Jesus. In spite of the times when life is hard, I want them to run after Jesus. Those are all things that are on my heart, things that I pray for my kids for. Now, Jesus tells us and instructs us to address our God as our heavenly father. He is our perfect, Jesus tells us he's our perfect heavenly father who loves us, who cares about us. Have you ever stopped to think about, like, what does God want for his kids? If you're a child of God, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. What does God want for his kids? See, too often times I think when we think in terms of what God wants for his kids, we think purely in terms of things like being good. He wants you to, you know, check off some really important boxes. Maybe in your mind some of those are like church or dropping something in the black box or uh Maybe a devotional checklist. You've read a certain amount or different things. And, and, and there's a sense that you feel like that is what God wants for you. 
And, and of course, there's, there's, a, there's a sense that God doesn't want you to do things that hurt you, that blow up your life or other people's lives, obviously. And I would say, on a human level, we want that for our kids too, right? It's not at the top of our list when we start thinking of what we want for our kids. But obviously, we don't want them to go down paths that are going to bring destruction in their lives. And I would say that's the same with our God. But at a deeper level... I think all those, the things, the deeper level stuff we talked about that we desire for our kids, God wants that for his kids too. Relationship. Real relationship. Depth, to know they're loved. To know you're loved. In spite of times when life is hard. The things that you want for your kids. I think your heavenly father wants for you on a much deeper, purer, and more infinite level. The heart of the father. I think we see this in this section of scripture we're going to read in Ephesians today. And actually this, this, these verses we're going to read today are a prayer by the apostle Paul. Now the apostle Paul, he had a trajectory of success in mind for his life and what that looked like in in the context. He was very religious before he met Jesus and making great strides in the religious community and in leadership. And Jesus encountered him in a powerful way as he was literally persecuting Jesus' followers, dragging them into prison. Jesus encountered him, totally changed the trajectory of his life and invited him into something different. He, he never married, he never had kids, but he had a multitude of spiritual children. And the Ephesians and this group of churches in this area, and I'll put up a map, he's writing to the Ephesians, the book of, in, in Ephesus, and then also to the churches in this surrounding region, which is Asia Minor. This is in the Roman Empire in the first century. It's a very um, influential town seat of power, a really religious town. There's all sorts of temples to, to, God, to the goddess Artemis and temples to the Roman emperors who, who at this time the cult of emperor worship was really, really rising. It's a place of political influence and wealth. And he plants a church there. And he then, years later, writes to his spiritual children, And here's his heart for them that reflects the Heavenly Father's heart for them. And I'm going to just start by reading reading these verses here that we're going to go through all the way through. And then we're going to come back and we're going to really unpack them and uh, dig into what they say. But if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to start in. And if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be right on the screen behind me as well. And here's what it says. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And before we dive in, let's just, let's just stop and let's pray. I want to invite the Lord to really bring, this, bring these words alive because um, there's so much in here. Father, we just come before you. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would just speak to hearts here. That we would, as Paul prays, know you better and know you more in a deeper level and that you would reveal your heart to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul says, for this reason, for this reason, and just to bring you back to remind you for this reason, he's speaking of the, the verses that we've seen, the section we've seen in chapter 1 before this, and there's so, so much theology in there, just like there's so much theology packed into these few verses we just read that we could do a whole sermon series if we wanted to, just on the concepts in there. It's like, anybody feel like you read that and it's like, whoa, 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 and then you're, you're like, just sort of zooms over your head because it's so much. That's when you read Paul. Um, and this is his prayer. But he says, for this reason. And you remember, what is this reason? Well, he tells us, before the very creation of the world, you were, he, he chose you. He wanted you. He chose you for adoption into his family. And last week, if you missed it, um, we've zoomed in on one of those concepts, a big argument in the church, uh, big C church around the world for hundreds of years, and I took my best, like, puny little stab at it um, as far as predestination, free will. How does it all come together? How do we understand? He chose us, and yet we're called to choose him and to respond to him and these things that we, we can't really comprehend. And really what we, what we ended up landing on is he, he's an infinite God, and we are finite people. But I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that if you, if you missed the talk last week. He chose you. Yes, you respond. You say yes. Um, but he wanted you. And here's the beautiful thing about this. Adoption. He chose you for adoption into his family. In the culture in this time, they didn't really adopt like cute little babies like, like we do now. They picked grown-ups who are making something of their life. And so an emperor would adopt like Augustus. He was adopted, uh, Caesar Augustus. Because he was like, all right, he's showing some potential. We'll adopt him. I'll leave my stuff to him. He won't blow it. And in that context, here's the idea. He wanted you. He chose you. He saw all your faults, all your flaws, and yet he wanted you in his family. It's powerful. He chose you. We see that he lavished his grace upon us. We see that we had redemption. He bought us back from the power of the enemy, from the power of sin and death. We have forgiveness, adoption. Literally, uh, next week in uh, chapter 2, we'll see he, he, uh, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he brought us to life. He pulled us up. All these huge, beautiful theological concepts. And so Paul's saying, for that reason... For that reason, I'm going to pray for you. I, I, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love 
for all God's people. Faith and love. These are really big deal words all throughout the New Testament. Faith, hope, love. You see those work together. Trusting God, having hope in what he calls. And then how does this work itself out in love for each other, actually? Jesus said, they'll know you are my disciples by what? Your love for each other. Uh, Paul, in another verse in Galatians, says, um, he says, the only thing that really counts is faith, trusting Jesus, working itself out in love. The big, this is big deal stuff. And Paul says, you've got it. You've got it. And because of that, he says, he goes on, he says, I give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I've not stopped. I'm always praying for you. I'm, I'm remembering you. I haven't stopped praying for you and giving thanks for you. Are, are you thankful for those that God has placed in your life? Are you thankful? I think in our, in our culture in this day and age, it's really easy to lose the sense of thankfulness for our brothers and sisters, for those that God has placed in our life, and to begin to view other people more as just there for your, for your benefit, to serve you. Paul says, I am grateful. I am thankful for you. As he looks at it, like kids, <laughs> you're my spiritual children, and I can't stop giving thanks for you. He goes on in verse 17, he says, I keep asking that, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see Trinity language all over this prayer, all over this book, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, this is directly following in verse 13, where he says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So at salvation, you, the, the Holy Spirit, you're marked with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. But he says, I keep praying that he would give you more, that it, you would be continually filled. Later on in this book, he's going to say, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? So that you can know him better at a deeper level that you would know him better. The spirit of wisdom and revelation. How many, how many of you know that you, can, that you can know things without really knowing them in your heart? There's plenty of things you know, but, but they haven't really sunk into you. And he's saying you need the Holy Spirit to, to show you the heart of God at a deeper level. And this is a continual thing that he gives you more wisdom and more understanding and reveals his heart to you. And that's his prayer for you. That as you lean into the Spirit, the Spirit would continually fill you and give you more wisdom and understanding so that you can know him at a deep level. Not just know stuff about him. Not just have a list of theological facts, but you would know God. That you would have a relationship, a growing relationship, more depth, more wisdom. You would experience him on a deeper level. This is prayer. So he goes on, he says, so how does this happen? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the, glorious, or the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The eyes of your heart. Now that's, if you actually stop and think of that, that's like a funny word picture, isn't it? Your heart with eyeballs on it. 
looking kind of creepy. That's, is that what he's talking about? No, that's not what he's talking about, is he? What is he saying? There's, there's a sense of your inner eyes that you would see at a deeper level, at a spiritual level, that you would see reality as it actually is, not just the surface level of things. You would have spiritual sight. There's this amazing passage in the Old Testament where there's this one of the like super famous prophets, Elisha. Uh, there's an army that's surrounding them, and he's got his servant with them, and his servant's freaking out. As he, as he like looks around, he's like, we're so outnumbered, we're dead, what's going to happen? And Elijah's over there coming, going, calm down, dude, calm down. That he prays, and what does he pray? That God would open his eyes to see the reality of what actually is. And what was the reality? That God opens his eyes, and he sees on a deeper level the armies of God, like chariots and horses of fire, all this stuff, all the way surrounding the enemy's army, and all of a sudden, he's not freaked out anymore. Because what? Because there's a deeper reality that's true beyond what appears on the surface. There's a deeper reality, and that's what um, Paul is praying, that I want your, the eyes of your heart to be opened, that you would see the deeper reality of what is true. Because the truth of what God says is true about you and, and reality and your future is deeper than your experience. It's more real than your experience now. This feels real. The chair you feel on. But we're told that this life is a shadow of the deeper reality. Paul says in another place that we see dimly as in a mirror. And in ancient times, they would polish metal. And you couldn't see very well. It wasn't a very good mirror. It was like foggy mirror. And, and Paul says, we see now dimly as in a mirror, but then face to face, there's a deeper, more true reality than the fact that you're sitting here right now. Than this physical reality. And that is the reality of God. And the reality of what he promises toward your future. And Paul says, I want you to open, I want your eyes to be opened so that you can actually see that, so you can experience that, so you can know that. Know what? Know the hope, the hope to which he's called you. Now, when you see hope in the scriptures, hope isn't just um, like hoping for a long shot. Some of you, you are hoping that the Broncos are going to pull it around this next season and follow in the Nuggets' footsteps. Keep hoping. Biblical hope is based on expectancy. It's based on God's promise. It's based on the fact that if God says it, you can bank on it. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for. So there are things you, you hope for, but this isn't just a long shot kind of thing. Faith and hope, they go together, and it's confidence about what we don't see yet. That God says it. So we have hope because we can trust what God says about the future. We have hope because we can trust that God's character, who he says he is. And in this culture, man, it was a culture with lots of hopelessness. Not that unsimilar from a culture today where so many people don't have hope. In fact, there was a saying that they had in the culture, a common saying. It was, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. 
sort of this fatalistic viewpoint of life. You think it's hard for you to get ahead. Um, people in ancient times to, to escape the, the station in life, the place in life you were born in, very hard. Very hard. They didn't have a lot of hope. In fact, um, they felt like they were ruled by all these spiritual forces. And so anything bad that happened was a result of some dark spiritual power that they had to then appease through sacrifices. Not a lot of hope. In fact, um, Karl Marx, who is uh, uh, one of the thinkers that highly influenced communism, he said, religion is the opiate of the masses. Basically, the way you kind of help yourself, comfort yourself in the hopelessness. Now, his answer was state. And that went on, uh, that we are our own hope, right? And so his, his frame of thinking went on to murder over 100 million people in the last century. We are not our own saviors. We are not our own saviors. There is a hope, but it's based in the promise of God, of what God says is true. See, hope is, it is a expectancy that what God says is actually going to happen. And what does God say about your future? See, um, one scholar put it this way. I thought it was great. He said he defined hope as faith standing on tiptoe, leaning forward like there's an expectancy. You get the idea of like a kid peeking out the window like, come on, when's, when's my friend going to come over? You have a kid like that? They just like sit at the window waiting when they know their friend's coming over. And there's this like, it's faith. It's going to happen with expectancy. If God said it, it's going to happen. And what does he say? Well, what Paul says, where, what is the hope? He, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What does that mean? This life is not all there is. There is a future face-to-face with our Lord. A future beyond anything you can comprehend. And when it says his glorious inheritance, he's not just talking about stuff. We hear inheritance. We think in stuff language. I'm going to get some stuff. Now, here, here's, here's the big idea here. In the Greek, in the original language, the glorious riches, the, the glorious inheritance in his holy people. This is talking about God's inheritance. And what is that? You. Relationship with you. A depth of relationship. You ever had a, a meal um, with someone like you really loved and care about, maybe some good friends, and you just don't want it to end because it's just there's great relationship and great conversation, and it's like, oh, man, it's 9 o'clock. We got to go home already. It's, it's like relationship that isn't going to end. It's not going to be broken. The beauty of fellowship around Christmas morning and the next day doesn't come, and your kids aren't all sugared up and grumpy. And throwing toys off to the side. <laughs> it's, it's the relationship. This is what it's about. Here, here's, here's the idea. What does a God who created everything need? Nothing. Nothing. What does our God want? You. Relationship with you. And with me, 
You are wanted, loved, pursued by the Heavenly Father. So much that Jesus, that, that he sent his only son to die for you, to make the way. In fact, a little later in chapter 5, we're going to see this instruction based on this huge concept that says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. What woman doesn't want to feel wanted, loved, pursued? He desires relationship with you. He wants your heart. There was never a time, verse 4, before the creation of the world, there was never a time when you weren't loved in the heart of God. Can you fathom that? I I mean, we, we can't. So some things we just have to trust and go, wow. The glorious, his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And it goes on, it says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. He talks about resurrection power. Now, if you were just wanting to describe the the incomparably great power of God, probably what terms would you put it in? I probably would pick creation of the universe, right? Like anybody go out and look at the stars lately? Our little Milky Way galaxy, 100 billion stars, 100,000 light years across, just our galaxy. And then I I remember seeing this photo where it starts zooming out of our galaxy. I mean, we can't even comprehend how big, 100,000 light years traveling at the speed of light to get across it. What? Hundred billion stars, like our sun. Uh, yeah, you can't even comprehend that. But then, as it starts zooming out, and you start seeing, literally, our galaxy is this blip. Barely, you can't when you zoom it out, and that's just what we know so far. It's this little blip. You can barely see it on a photograph. This tiny little cluster. It's our little neighborhood. No big deal. Hundred billion stars. And we're like a little blip that you, I mean, you can't even, it's not, not even a speck. You can't see our little dinky planet. That's power, right? But Paul uses resurrection. Resurrection. Why? I think there's something here. Because resurrection power is bringing life to something that was dead. See, here's his point. His resurrection power, power to bring life from death, beauty from ashes, dead bones to life, power to reach down when you were dead in your trespasses and sins and pull you out and save you and bring you into his family and embrace you. Power to take the circumstances in your life. See, because we read this about hope and all these things, and oftentimes it just sounds like flowery language because when, when life, when we look at our lives, it's hard. And there's pain. 
and the things, some of the things we wanted for our kids didn't happen, and some of the things that we wanted for our life haven't happened, many of them. Power to move in that situation to, in all things, work for the good of those who love him. And somehow, in his plan, work it out. That's the power he's highlighting here. It's power, he goes on to say, that he's seated in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion. Every name that is invoked, that's a big deal, where they would do magic charms and things in this very religious, spiritual city of Ephesus. And he's saying Jesus is above all the powers of the universe. All the spiritual powers, that there is actually a heavenly realm, a spiritual realm that goes deeper that you can't see with your physical eyes, where there's powers and there's authorities. In fact, next chapter, we're going to see the prince of the power of the air. One who's working toward the destruction of people in this day, in this age. And yet at the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus defeated them. It's a done deal. This is this big concept we call the already and the not yet. His kingdom has come. His kingdom is growing. The powers of darkness do not have authority over you or my. Why? Because we are in Christ. He uses this language over and over and over again. In Christ, in Christ. And yet we know we wait till all things are summed up, till he returns, until those evil powers are judged finally and eternally. So they don't have influence and ability anymore to damage people's lives. It's all in his purpose. It's all in his plan. And he has, he's the one with authority, which means you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear to spiritual powers. For them, we don't often think of this so much in our modern culture that tends to swing so far the opposite direction that we don't even acknowledge that there's any spiritual powers working behind the scenes toward destruction, influencing people, whispering lies in your ear. I think C.S. Lewis might, might have said it best in his book, The Screwtape Letters, as he paints this picture of Satan's perfectly happy in a modern society like ours just to cloak his presence and influence people behind the scenes. Whereas in some of these other cultures, places I've been around the world, Africa, Thailand, they're very aware of the spiritual realm and they live in fear. The truth is, the power of the enemy, he does not have authority over you or over me because Jesus is over it all. Now, it doesn't mean we, we take them lightly. You don't mess around with the stuff. You don't, Jude talks about these people who go around rebuking powers um, that don't understand what they're talking about and says, that's a danger. What do we do? We're going to see it a little later in chapter 6. Go read ahead. We see our battle is not against flesh and blood, our struggle, but against what? That there is another realm, the powers, the spiritual powers and authorities and principalities in the heavenly places that are trying to influence you, speak lies into your ears. So, so what, is, what do you do? Well, you put on the belt of truth. The truth that God says about you. What's true about you? What's true about Jesus? Who has the authority? the breastplate of righteousness. You submit your life to living rightly before him, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, getting on track with the Holy Spirit. 
your, your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. You get on mission for him. Start living for him in this world. Have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's what arms you. You don't have to go around afraid. You just follow Jesus. Lean in. Walk with his spirit. His victory over them is total. And it is power for hope for the life beyond this life. Which gives us hope, doesn't it? Because this life is hard. We see in Romans 8, um, his power doesn't remove us from persecution or danger or difficulty and death, but it makes us more than conquerors in all these things. This is what he wants your eyes to be open to because it can give you a confidence to live in the face of whatever life throws at you and a hope. And it goes on in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, Jesus, who fills everything in every way. The fullness of him. Here's what I want you to understand. If you get this wrong, you're going to miss out. If you don't have spiritual eyes to see this, it, in our culture, we tend to think the story is about me, that I'm the star player in the story, in the movie of life, which pretty much is all about me. And everybody else is like two bad actors. Now, you would never say that or admit that, but many of us, we live with that kind of sort of theme running through our heads, don't we? Colossians tells us this, this vast universe that we can't comprehend. That Just, just thinking about that should be enough to make you feel a little bit small and, and say, maybe, maybe the story isn't all about me. But most of us, that's not enough. <laughs> Think about this. Okay, so... Uh, in Colossians, Paul says this, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth in Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, these, this structure in the heavenly spiritual realm that we don't really fully understand, all things have been created, listen to this, through him and for him. Through him and for him. What is this? This is a Christ-centric view of reality in the universe. It was all created both through him and for him. Your life was placed here not for you, but for him. So if you, here's, here's the truth of this. If you think that it's about you and you live your life like it's about you, you won't be happy because that's not what you were created for. You know this. Some of the most unhappy people are some of the most selfish people. Some of the most happy people are the most selfless people. This isn't like, you know, rocket science. And yet so often we get this backwards. We often repeat a phrase around here, life is for you, not about you. He wants you. He wants relationship with you. You, you are your inheritance, that relationship. But it's not about you. It's about him. It's about his greater purposes and plan and what he's doing in this world. And he gets to catch you up into it. For what? For the church. 
placed all things. He's head of everything for the church. It's for your benefit. For your benefit, which is his body. Here's this idea. Him is the head. The church is the body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's for your benefit, but it's about him. Um, there's this great book I read years ago by John Eldridge, uh, Wild at Heart. Um, it's a great book for guys, also for, for ladies to read. And one of the things that, that he says here is guys typically, especially when it comes to women, they get the whole thing backwards. And, and here's what he says. He says, a woman doesn't want to be the adventure she, um, she wants to be caught up into something greater than herself. This is a freebie, guys. So if you're, you're like dating, okay, you know, you're those, that time you're like, you know, thinking about finding someone, getting married. Um, don't make, uh, isn't that true? It's about being caught up into something greater. Because why? Because you were designed to be part of this creation, living your life for him. That's where you find joy. That's where you find happiness. So when he paints this picture later on of, of husbands and wives and Christ in the church, there's a deeper thing he's going to be talking about. But at the fundamental level, you were created for him, for relationship with him, to be caught up into the, what he's doing in the universe. And you can't really comprehend that. All you can do is go, okay, wow. What do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do now? See, this changes. If you could really grasp this, this prayer, I think it begins to change everything. I exist for him. Why does he want relationship with me? I don't know, but he does. And at a certain point, you just go, thank you, God. That you've actually invited me. Paul recognizes um, himself as the worst of sinners, and yet God gave him perhaps um, probably one of the most significant lives lived for him in all of history. Never got married, never had a family. But he had spiritual sons and daughters who know him. And the fact that you and I are here 2,000 years later, you can trace that back to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Significance is found in him. It's found in him. And that's why a little bit later in this book, he's going to say, hey, here's what I want you to know. Here's another way God's power works itself out. You need the power of God to actually help you comprehend how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What? Yeah, to know the love that does what it goes beyond just your head. It has to sink into your heart. That's why you need this, the eyes of your heart to be opened. Anybody remember that song we used to sing? Open the eyes of my heart. You need that so you can comprehend this because you can't do it on just a physical, mental, intellectual level. There's a deeper reality. How long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. (laughs) 
That thing in you that says there must be something more, it's right. There's something more available for you. You need your eyes opened. You need to walk with his spirit, to be filled with his spirit, to understand it. You catch glimpses of it, but so many times we live in this place where we're just too wrapped up in the here and now. You'll be filled with him. Would you stand? Let's just bow our heads. And what we're going to do as we close here today is I'm going to read these, some of these verses in Paul's prayer as a prayer over you. And what I'm going to challenge you to do today is if you're in this place, you're like, I want to know that. I want to know that. I want my eyes opened. I want to experience that. I want to comprehend this on a deeper level because I just don't feel like I'm there. Why don't you just stretch your hands out in front of you? There's nothing magic. It's just a symbol of a posture of receiving from him. I'm going to pray this over you. And for some of you, as, as I pray this, maybe the step you're taking is recognizing that it's a much bigger thing, that he actually loves you and cares about you and wants you and his family. And you're recognizing that for the first time here today. If that's you, call out to him. Ask him for his life, for his salvation. Ask him for his forgiveness. To give you, to fill you with his Holy Spirit. To bring you into his family. We call that salvation. Ask him for that. Let me pray this over you. The Apostle Paul prayed, I pray. Father, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Father, that's our prayer. Would you open our eyes? Or would you do what only you can do in our hearts? And as we read these words that have been recorded, this prayer that reveal your heart for us, would you help us to actually live our lives as a grateful response from this place. Do what only you can do, Lord. Break through to hearts and minds right now. In Jesus' name, amen.